0: everyone. Welcome to Osteobytes. Thanks for joining us on your Thursday afternoon. Um, my name is Christina Itoma, and I am mom to Osteo Angel Dillon and director of scientific programs at MIB Agent. And today on Osteobytes, we are talking to Jim Palma from the Target Cancer Foundation. Jim will be discussing tcf one trial, which is a clinical trial studying precision medicine in rare cancers. Thanks so much, Jim, for joining us on Osteobytes today. We are thrilled to have you and welcome to Max and Walker, who are our panelists today. Max and Walker are uh, osteo warriors, and they are also um, members of our junior advisory board. Um, so, a little bit more about our guest today. Jim Palma is the executive director of Target Cancer Foundation. And since joining Target Cancer Foundation in 2010, Jim has overseen its growth from a small startup to a nationally recognized foundation supporting comprehensive rare cancer research programs and patient support services. And prior to joining Carrot Cancer Foundation, Jim spent 11 years at Fidelity Investments in Boston, Massachusetts. Go Red Sox! And Jim is a member of the board of directors of the National Organization for Rare Disorders, otherwise known as NORD. And he's also co-founding, um, so, sorry, founding co-chair of the NORD Rare Cancer Coalition. In addition, Jim is a steering committee member at the GI Cancer Alliance and the Global Colangial Carcinoma Alliance. Jim completed studies at the Institute for Nonprofit Management and Leadership at the Questrom School of Business at Boston University, and received his BA from Loyola University, Maryland. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jim. And yeah, some announcements and reminders before we get started. Our um, MIV monthly newsletter, Connective Issue, just went out yesterday. It's a monthly roundup of all things osteosarcoma. Um, it includes recently published papers and articles on osteo, um, new clinical trials job postings, funding opportunities, and spotlights on members of our community. And if you aren't already receiving it, you can sign up to get it on our website. Um, you can also find all past issues on our website. I'll put a link in the chat. Um, but to receive it, just click on the join button on our website. And then we also have our bi-monthly virtual tumor board for osteosarcoma, uh, which we affectionately call turbo. Um, and the next meeting is November 8th. That will be our last meeting of 2023. And then I will resume again in January of 24. If you are a clinician or a researcher with an interest in osteosarcoma, you are welcome to join. And I'll put a link in the chat with some more information on that. I'm Max and Walker, could you please introduce yourself?
1: Hi, Max, I was diagnosed with osteosarcoma in my right to sulphemer in 2015 when I was 10 years old. Since then, I've been almost eight years NED and I've been involved with MIB ever since. I went to the pre-COVID factor conferences and I've been an ambassador agent and been on the junior advisory board. I'll hand it off to Walker now. Hi uh, my name is Walker and uh, I'm on the junior advisory board this year and the vice president for this year's term. Um, I was diagnosed in 2018 and then have been about oh, a little over three years NED um, and I'm really excited to hear what uh, Mr. Jim Poma has to say today, so you can take it and learn.
2: Great. Well, well thanks, everyone. Um, thank you, Max. Thank you, Walker, um, for being here today. Thank you, uh, Christina, for inviting me to be here. I, I really appreciate it. Um, and I've I've long been a fan of this organization and maybe just a little bit of background um, several years ago, I had the opportunity to partner with the Broad Institute and the Count Me In initiative that was going on there when they were developing the Osteosarcoma Project. Um, and that was really my first introduction to this community. Um, but through that project, got to know many, many people in this space. Um, and of course, got to know Ann Graham, who uh, I immediately became a very big fan of. Um, just so so impressed with the work going on at MIB, but also uh, just really admired Anne and, and how how she's built this organization. Um, so uh, we lost touch for a little while, but then at ASCO this year, like so many things, we bumped into each other in the hallway. Um, and five minutes later uh, I think I got an email to to uh, appear in this um, webinar. So I, I'm really really glad to be here and really appreciate the opportunity to talk. Um, and I'll I'll be going through some slides, not too many. Um, but please, if there's questions along the way, um, uh, whether they um, go through the chat or the Q&A, um, don't hesitate to stop me. I- I'd be happy to answer any questions. And-, and then, of course, there'll be some time for Q&A at the end. Just by way of agenda, um, I'm just going to give a little bit of background on Target Cancer Foundation and, and who we are. Um, and then I'll be talking primarily about the TRACKS study, uh, like Christina said, really giving an overview of it, talking about inclusion and exclusion criteria, um, and how the study works from an enrolling patient perspective. Um, I'll introduce the team who operates the study and then of course take, um, any questions either along the way or, or at the end of the talk. So, um, By way of background, Target Cancer Foundation is a rare cancer um, research and patient support foundation. And we really focus on rare cancers broadly. Um, So um, we don't look at any one particular type of rare cancer. We really try to focus on our efforts on the the elements and the challenges of rare cancers that are very consistent despite rare cancer type. Um, We're a patient-founded organization, and that patient was my brother-in-law, Paul, who's uh, pictured here. and Paul was in his late 30s when he was diagnosed with cholangiocarcinoma, which is a rare cancer of the bile ducts in the liver. Um, Paul was, um, you know, a relatively young, um, otherwise very healthy person with, with no history and no indication that he would be diagnosed with something like this. Um, but, you know, we felt that fortunately for us, being here in Boston with some of the top cancer centers in the world, um, he would be given good and effective treatments that would give him, you know, a good chance against this disease. Um, What we quickly found and what we know is so consistent for so many patients facing rare cancers um, was that, in fact, there were no treatments available for his disease and there are actually very few, very little research being carried out. Um, So quite a shock, of course. And um, really, uh, during the time that Paul was treated, he he really didn't receive treatments that were helpful to him um, because there was just such a lack of treatments designed for cholangic carcinoma at that time. Um, So Paul started Target Cancer Foundation in response to this situation, really in in an effort to drive research funding towards rare cancers like the one that he had. Um, Paul passed away in 2009, um, but since then his wife, who's my sister, uh, kept the foundation going. And about a year later, uh, I came into it full time and I've been doing this ever since for about 13 years. Um, So Target Cancer Foundation really um, historically focused our efforts on funding basic research into rare cancers. and we would fund projects uh, really focused on developing foundational research tools, which don't exist in rare cancers, but often exist in great numbers for common cancers. So things like cancer cell lines, mouse models, these really, really important tools to any research program, which just couldn't be found for cholangiocarcinoma and other rare cancers. Over time, though, as we started working more and more with the patient community, the these challenges that I was talking about that are so consistent among all rare cancers were really becoming more and more clear to us. Um, And really those were challenges um, that included things like access to clinical trials, um, access to an awareness of biomarker testing, um, not to mention the isolation that can come along with a rare cancer diagnosis. So as time went on and as we really thought about how we could expand our impact as a foundation and skipping over many years of development and history here, um, we landed on the idea of developing a clinical trial of our own that would sort of achieve two things at once, both give patients data that they need to identify the best treatments possible while simultaneously generating data to inform research going forward. Um, So the result of that idea and what we put together is a clinical trial called TCF-001 TRAC, which stands for Target Rare Cancer Knowledge. Um, And TRAC is a prospective clinical trial uh, enrolling 400 patients with rare cancers or cancer of unknown primary. And and just to to clarify, this is not a, a experimental drug trial Um, More of an observational clinical trial, but a clinical trial nonetheless. So just a few quick points that I wanted to start with. Usually I put this slide later in the presentation, but I wanted to start here for a particular reason. Um, So tracks enrolling 400 patients, 200 of those patients will be any rare cancer. And we define that as um, solid tumors and lymphomas, incidence of 6 per 100,000 per year is about 20,000 patients per year. Uh, 100 patients with cholangiocarcinoma, and 100 patients with cancer Um, And that's for patients in the U.S. aged 18 and older. Um, so I wanted to just stop there and say it's not lost on me for a moment um, that I'm giving this presentation uh, on, you know, the MIB osteobite series. Um, and I, of course, am fully aware that osteosarcoma is is a type of our cancer that, um, you know, very much impacts the uh, community of patients under the age of 18. Um, we you know, so it's it's not for a lack of awareness, or certainly not for a lack of caring, um, that we have this age restriction in the study. Really, as a small foundation um, developing our very first clinical trial, um, which is a pretty significant effort, we really needed to make sure that we could prove this concept operationally in building the trial, and then from there have the opportunity to expand. We hope to um, other age groups as well as other populations outside the U.S. Um, so it's something that's very much on our radar. But is not in place at this time. And I just wanted to take a moment to mention that um, before we move forward. So like I said earlier, TRAC um, has parallel patient impact and research impact goals. Um, So I'll talk about the patient impact side first. Um, So TRAC is a a fully decentralized remote clinical trial. So what that basically means is um, often clinical trials uh, require patients to travel to a particular clinical trial site to enroll and participate in that trial. Uh, what we've been able to do here is utilize remote consenting so that patients can fully consent to and enroll from the trial enroll into the trial from wherever they live and really from their homes. Um, so it doesn't require traveling to a clinical trial site. Um, anybody in the US from wherever they live can enroll in this trial. Um, and, and that's something that we built into the study solely because we know that a limiting factor for people um, participating in trials is geography. Um, not everybody lives uh, in or er, is right around Boston like I am, where I have access to these institutions just down the street. Um, second, we wanted to make sure that we were addressing that um, barrier to clinical trials of biomarker testing, and of course, biomarker testing is an, an incredibly important tool in identifying, you know, what what mutations are driving any one individual's cancer, and then are there drugs available to target those mutations. Um, so we were able to partner with Foundation Medicine. Um, on this study to ensure that all patients enrolling receive uh, genomic profiling, or also known as biomarker testing, also known as next-generation sequencing, many names. Um, but all patients enrolled would receive um, comprehensive genomic profiling of tissue and blood through foundation medicine, and they would receive that at no cost. So really trying to remove that cost barrier, which is a very significant one, especially in rare cancers where there's less evidence to drive insurance reimbursement for testing. Um, one thing I want to point out for the osteosarcoma community is that um, rather than the Foundation 1 CDX tissue test, which is the typical sort of solid tumor tissue test that Foundation runs, we actually run the Foundation 1 heme test for all sarcoma patients um, because the heme test has a slightly different assay that looks more specifically for fusions that are present and actionable in sarcomas um, versus the Foundation 1 CDX tissue test. So same process, really no impact for a participating patient, um, but that is sort of a specialized test that patients um, with any type of sarcoma would get in this study. Um, finally, the, the, the next um, challenge that we wanted to address is that very often people receive biomarker testing of, of tissue or blood. They or their doctors get the reports back, um, but then h- how do you interpret these reports? And it's not always easy to do. Um, and I think that's especially true for an, a general oncologist who's seeing patients with all different types of cancers, you know, versus a very, very specialized oncologist who's only looking a bit, a, at a particular type of cancer and may be very, very well versed um, in the implications of this report. So what we've done is we've developed a virtual extramole- a molecular tumor board um, who we meets, meets on a weekly basis and we provide them with the reports from the Foundation Tissue and Blood Testing as well as the patient medical history. And they have a very in-depth discussion. Uh, and the result of that discussion is a list of treatment recommendations along with rationale and references. And those recommendations go back directly to the patient and their treating physician. Um, at that point, it's up to the patient and their treating physician to make decisions about whether or not they'll take those recommendations. Um, so we're not requiring in any way that people have to take our recommendations. Um, we're not supplying drugs or anything like that. We're making the recommendations in the hope that they'll be considered and ultimately taken, because of course we feel that these molecularly targeted recommendations based on genomic reports can be very powerful.
0: Jay, you might be getting to this. I noticed it's the it's one year is kind of the time frame. Yep. Uh, but let's say you have a, a patient that does have a recurrence within that one year, um, so. Does, can they continue to send samples? It's not, I think blood is continued to be sent, but tissue samples, like multiple tissue samples, can be sent.
2: Generally, um, we only do tissue at baseline. Um, there could be exceptions to that, but our sort of general protocol is that we do tissue once, but then we repeat blood over that year that follows these initial steps. Um, and and really, the the blood test, um, I think more and more with time is becoming. Um, both a complementary test to tissue, but also um, a very sufficient test for, for detecting, you know, um, whether it's existing or new mutations um, that, are, that are circulating. So um, there may be occasions for us to repeat the tissue testing, but our general protocol is to, in that year that follows, repeat the blood testing one to two more times. Um, and if those re- resulting reports show a difference from the original ones or new actionable mutations, our molecular tumor board will provide new recommendations based on that.
0: I think that's great. I mean, I think the blood um, thing is great because it could potentially also help monitor, provide like kind of early alert, right, to recurrence. Um, but I, like, I think it would be interesting to be able to, to to do the other samples just to see if there's a difference between primary and metastatic.
2: Yeah, it's a great point. Um, and I think, you know, we we have a lot of... Based on what we've learned in the study so far, it's opened our eyes to a lot of different directions that we would love to take this in either add-on cohorts or future studies. Um, and certainly looking at tissue over time is one. Of course, the challenge with tissue is that it does require repeat biopsies. So the the convenience of blood is, it, is that it's very convenient. Um, a blood draw is, is not, not as... Um, as difficult for a patient as a new biopsy would be. So um, that's the other, the availability of tissue is also a limiting factor in doing um, tissue at multiple step, uh, multiple times.
0: Yeah, yeah, likely probably just at recurrence if there was like a surgical.
2: Yeah, yeah, and at that point what we would do is sort of evaluate it um, with our PI team to see if there's a possibility of running a new tissue test at that point. Great, thank you. Of course. Um, so, yeah, so like I said, we're, we, we are following um, all enrolled patients for at least a year after these initial steps that I described and potentially repeating um, the foundation blood testing a few times. We're also re-requesting medical records because what we want to do is get a sense of how how um, people's sort of treatment is going and, and, you know, what treatments they ended up taking um, and, and how they're doing after that. So we, we follow that information very closely for about a year. Um, And then, of course, because we're enrolling all different types of rare cancers in this study, we're developing a lot of genomic data that just, you know, typically isn't collected on a lot of different rare cancers and doesn't really exist in any single place. So um, we're really excited to be able to hopefully soon be able to present what we've learned about um, the over 40 different types of rare cancers that we've um, seen in this study.
1: Um, I just have a quick question. Sure. So... Collecting the tests and providing feedback for treatments, are you collaborating with the patient's oncologist too, or are you going straight uh, between track and the patient? That's a great question. So um, ideally,
2: we would love to collaborate with a treating oncologist, um, and we actually invite the treating oncologist to the Molecular Tumor Board meetings. Um, Unfortunately, (laughs) the reality of, um, I think, scheduling and just just the difficulty and, and, and very busy schedules is that we, we don't get a lot of uptake on that, but it does happen occasionally. Um, even if um, oncologists can't make the molecular tumor board meeting, we do offer that they can connect with our PIs and molecular tumor board members afterward if, if they want to. Um, and that does happen um, You know, with some regularity. Uh, it's just hard to get people to come to the molecular tumor board meetings themselves. But it's a great, a great point. It's, it's a real it's a way that we could really strengthen the recommendations is by having that full team available. So I promise I won't go through this whole slide, um, but I wanted to just talk about some key points on inclusion criteria for this study. And despite all of this tiny text, we tried very hard in developing the protocol to keep the inclusion criteria as minimal as possible. We we don't we wanted to lower the barrier to Andrea to, to this trial, not not make it more difficult. Um, so some of these things I've already talked about, I think the key, key items I want to just make sure I focus on is tissue. So available tissue for testing is a required element of enrolling into this study. Um, and that tissue has to be, um, 18 months or less old. So we wanted to make sure that we were, um, looking at tissue that would, you know, most accurately represent what's driving any particular patient's cancer at, at that time of their enrollment. Um, and 18 months was the number that, that our PIs came up with. So um, anyone enrolling in the study has to have tissue available for us to run new testing on. The exception to that is if and if a patient has already had a foundation medicine tissue test within the past 18 months, they can use that to enroll into the study and we wouldn't run a new test. So. That actually can be very beneficial because it really speeds up the process um, for somebody to get in front of the molecular tumor board. Um, so basically, the probably the two biggest inclusion criteria are either having available tissue for new testing or an existing foundation medicine tissue test that's been um, performed in the past 18 months. And the reason it has to be foundation medicine is because that's the testing partner for this study. So you know, we're, we're developing data that's consistent through that particular type of test. Um, if somebody has had Tempest testing or Keras or, or any other provider, um, we can, we will absolutely use it in the molecular tumor board discussion, but we unfortunately can't use it for enrollment purposes. Um, so that's, that's just one, one point. Um, one other point I wanted to make specifically for this discussion, um, But this, I'm going to make it very uh, broadly because I'm not an expert in any way on this. Um, But one of the things that has come up before is that very often um, for in in cancers of the bone, um, my understanding is that the samples that are taken um, and then submitted for tissue testing have been decalcified as sort of just a matter of protocol um, by the institution pathology department. And the process of decalcification can um, very negatively impact the later ability to run uh, genomic testing. So, like I said, this is not my expertise, I'm not a pathologist, um, but this is something that's come up in our study quite a few times. And if anybody watching today or watching later would like more information on that, I would be happy to go back to our team at Foundation Medicine to get some some real sort of criteria about how that works. Um, because I do know that it's it's something that happens somewhat regularly in this study, And again, I think for osteosarcoma specifically, it's something that probably happens even more um, than in other types of cancers. So I wanted to just mention that. Of course, that's a part of the process that um, patients or or advocates or caregivers have no real control over, but could be something that a physician may um, sort of reach out to their pathology department on um, to make sure that the tissue is preserved in the right way.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, Jim. And we've actually worked with um, a couple of pathologists who work often with osteo samples, and I think they have um, they do have some documentation around some gentler decals um, that can be used to help, kind of help better preserve the sample. Um, and so we're happy to kind of share that information as well, or just point people to some yeah. resources on that. But that's really great about being able to still enroll in the study. Even if you've already gotten um, a test from FMI, and it would still be eligible for the molecular tumor board. Um, oh yeah, which is a really great benefit.
2: And and we would still do the blood testing as well. Um, you there just wouldn't be any need for a new tissue test, which of course also has the benefit that we're, we're not using tissue that's stored because obviously that's very very important to preserve as much of that as possible. Um, for exclusion criteria, re- really nothing. Um, nothing here that I would point out in the same way I did before. Um, again, we really tried to keep these as minimal as possible, um, and, and really as standard as possible. So, so very little here. I think that would fall outside um, what you would typically find on on most clinical trials. Um, I wanted to just mention a few things so um, that we've we've implemented into the study. So this study is a very dynamic process, and we're trying always to respond in real time to what we're hearing from people who are participating um, and the challenges that they're facing, and try to alleviate those. Um, so one thing that we did after we launched was we added a genetic counselor to our molecular tumor board. Um, we're not running germline testing at track, but um, uh, there, there's a, a much better evolving understanding of the sort of hereditary implications of what you see in a genomic test. Um, and since we're running the genomic testing, we have a genetic counselor now who can advise on, on what she's seeing in that genomic testing and just give general advice about, you know, uh, maybe suggest that a patient pursue germline testing based on what we're seeing in the genomic test results. Um, one, one of the other issues that, of course, we were very aware of is that if we make recommendations for treatment in the Molecular Tumor Board, um, of course, the patient and doctor have to actually acquire that treatment, which can be very, very difficult and costly, especially if it's something off-label. So we have a medical acquisition specialist whose job on the study is really just to partner with patients, work directly with them to appeal to insurance companies for coverage, and if that coverage is denied. Appealed directly to the drug companies for compassionate use, so trying to just help beyond that recommendation, help people actually get the treatments that we're recommending if they want to. Um, you know, during this study was developed before COVID, and of course, um, you know, the remote nature of it really sort of lent itself to to what we all dealt with during COVID, um, especially around blood draws. So we, you know. Um, we heard from patients that going to the hospital for a blood draw or even going to a, to a lab, to a Quest, was was very difficult. Um, so we, we um, set up a partnership with a mobile phlebotomy company. So now whenever there's blood testing done in the study, um, we send the phlebotomist directly to the patient's home um, if the patient chooses. Um, and that phlebotomist will, will take their blood, put it into the foundation kit, and send it off. Um, so trying to, again, to eliminate all of these barriers to participation and just make it as easy as possible. Um, And I mentioned the Foundation 1 heme test. That wasn't a part of our original design. But as we realized um, its importance in the sarcoma community, we implemented that test within the study as well.
0: Um, This is great, Jim, because it's really kind of taking into account kind of everything from a patient perspective and the potential barriers, which is fantastic. Um, And you might have already mentioned this already, but I might have missed it. So sorry, for the blood draws, how often um, are you looking for samples to be sent?
2: So we would do a sample um, at enrollment. So those first initial enrollment steps would include a tissue test, um, if someone doesn't already have one, um, and then a blood test. Then in that year that follows those initial steps, the blood, we may look to do one to two more blood tests. And that really depends on specific events in in the patient's sort of ongoing treatment. So that might be uh, a full or partial remission. Uh, it might be a recurrence, it could be initiation of a new treatment. Um, we have sort of triggering events that would lead to a new blood draw, but I think for most patients in this study, it's once or twice in that year that follows. Uh, and this is just the study so far at a glance. Um, <clears throat> we've enrolled 152 patients from 41 states, uh, so really, you know, kind of seeing the promise of this fully remote trial playing out um, as we're reaching um, almost entirely across the country and we're very determined, of course, to get to all 50 states. Um, And we've seen about 40 different types of rare cancers, including osteosarcoma in this study. So I wanna move in to uh, just walk through exactly how this works. Um, And we've had a few questions about that already, um, but before I do that, I just wanted to pause um, and see if there were any other questions on that first section or anything else that's come in.
0: Not yet, but but everyone, please feel free to ask your questions to the Q and A.
2: Okay, so this is really how Track works from the enrolling patient perspective. So um, essentially, this is a very patient is an entirely patient driven process. So if somebody was interested in enrolling in the Track study, what they would do um, is go onto our website, and there's sort of a form and an email address or a phone number, uh, and they would contact us directly to express an interest in the study. We want part of our, uh, a member of our study team would then follow up directly and have an initial phone call to talk more about the study and go through all the details of it. Um, And if the person is still interested at that point, um, we would send them a link to an online consent, um, which they can then take as much time as they would like to read. Um, And if they've read the consent and they're ready to move forward, they could sign that consent electronically. And now um, we've started the process of the study. Um, Shortly after, that person would receive a package of information from us, which includes things like HIPAA forms and tissue consents and all of those things that we need to start doing the work on our end to collect information about that patient. Um, At the same time, um, so or simultaneously, what we would be doing is contacting the treating institution to request medical records. We would then send a foundation medicine tissue kit to the institution's pathology department to request that they send tissue to foundation for testing. We would then send a blood kit directly to the patient um, and then set up that mobile phlebotomy appointment so that we can get the blood uh, testing process going as well um, all of that happens at the same time so hopefully we're getting the medical records back very very quickly sometimes we do sometimes we don't uh, it depends on the institution um, and then hopefully they're also responding quickly on a tissue request and the blood usually happens you know relatively fast so all that information then starts starts moving. Um, the med records come to us, the tissue gets sent to foundation, the blood gets sent to foundation, and those tests start going into process and being run. When all of that information comes back to us, we then trigger the molecular tumor board process. So like I said, our molecular tumor board meets once a week. Um, and every week we'll have probably between two and four patients that will present to the molecular tumor board, just depending on, on what we have available. Um, so as soon as we have an FMI report available and a, and a complete medical history, we then present the patients at that meeting, the MTB has their discussion, and then we develop this report that goes back out to the patient and the treating physician afterward. Um, if the blood comes in first, we'll have the first meeting about the blood, and then we'll have a repeat meeting to incorporate the tissue and vice versa. We love when they both are in at the same time because that allows for the most complete discussion, but that's very hard to coordinate. After those initial steps, when the um, when the report is sent back to the patient and treating physician with the treatment recommendations, we then move into a surveillance mode. Um, and what that basically means is we check in from time to time um, to ask the participating patient how things are going, if there's been any changes in their care. Um, we may re-request medical records at that point. And then based on some of those milestones that I talked about earlier, we may facilitate a new blood test, which then would ultimately you know, after everything came back, um, drive a new MTB meeting. So every time we run a new blood, um, a blood report for a patient, there will be a repeat MTB meeting for that patient as well. So a patient participating in track may have, you know, three or four, um, uh, MTB discussions about them, um, and three or four sets of reports that would come back to them as well. Um, in some cases, if nothing has changed, and those reports would just say nothing has changed, um, you know, our prior recommendations stand. But if we see something new, it might drive an entirely new recommendation.
0: Yeah, just a question, actually, about the blood test for, I'm just curious if, um, because, I mean, I think the heme, the, or sorry, I should say the liquid test, the blood test, seemed kind of like a newer product. Um mm-hmm. and- is the the foundation one heme test, and I'm wondering if it's been op, as like optimized for kind of each of these diseases as much because I I know for example several years ago it probably was not as optimized as the actual tissue heme test. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just kind of curious what you're seeing there, kind of from disease to disease.
2: Yeah. So blood, I think you know we're I think the community is learning more and more about it, and that test is being optimized. Um, it did receive FDA approval. I think it was in 2020. Um, you know, for for the use that that foundation uses it for, um, and I think you know a lot of the data that's coming out now, the sort of blood tissue concordance shows that you know in, in many cases the blood um, really is a very accurate sort of indicator um, of of what mutations are driving cancer. The the sort of exception to that is that different types of cancer shed DNA into the blood differently. So I do think that for certain types of cancer, the blood more, more consistently provides that accurate look and for certain types it, it might not. Um, but there are measurements to, to determine, you know, because of the percentage of DNA in this blood sample, we can be fairly confident that the, that this blood report is, you know, shows the full picture or there's really not a lot of DNA in this blood sample. So um, you know, there should really be a tissue test to confirm the blood report. So I think the way that I look at it as a lay person is that they're complementary. the two, the two really do tend to go together. Um, and our sort of approach to it in this study is that we'll always, we have that baseline tissue. And that's why I was saying for enrollment, you know, the biggest inclusion criteria is that there is tissue or a tissue test. And then we're doing blood as a, as sort of a, a complement to that. Um, so this is just a study team. Uh, just quickly, uh, Track is fully operationalized and run by Target Cancer Foundation. We built an internal operation to run the study, so that's our study team, and our investigators who are all um, amazing people to work with, but also really leaders and experts in rare cancers, um, and of course Foundation Medicine, who have been just amazing research partners on this study. Um, and I've been talking a lot about the virtual molecular tumor board, um, and as As much as it's like this completely fascinating and, um, you know, really enlightening discussion every week, it's a Zoom meeting like anything else um, with people from across the country, Um, but this is the group who participates and and really we're just, we couldn't be more fortunate to have such a a, a talented group of people and and just so many experts who are willing to participate in this with us. And that's the end of my slides. Um, I'm just putting this up here. Uh, You know, like I said, the first step for someone who was interested in track would be to uh, reach out to the track team directly. Um Mary Oster is the person who fields the majority of those uh inquiries. Um and she's she's terrific. Um and would discuss the initial steps in the study. Daniela uh, Alana Lua is um a newer addition to the team who's also just doing great work more on that ongoing process of participating in the study. Um we have a direct line for people to call and there's also a form on our website at slash track Um And you know, maybe just in closing, I would say, you know, this, like I said, we're we're a little bit unique that we're an advocacy foundation driving this trial. This is typically something that um, that is run through larger academic institutions or pharma companies. But our hope is that through an advocacy-initiated trial and one that was very much defined by patient experience, as well as um, given input by patient advisors throughout the development. Um, you know, that we've put something together that really represents the needs of this community of rare cancers um, as much as possible. So we're always open to input and feedback, um, but certainly hope that this is something that's of benefit for uh, for those who are interested. So I'm happy, happy to take any questions anybody might have.
0: Thanks so much, Jim. I think, I mean, this is a huge accomplishment getting this uh, study up and running. And you can tell um, that it you mentioned it. You can tell that it's been patient-driven, kind of based with all the kind of parts of the trial that you've already covered. So,
1: um, thank you. Thank great. you.
0: Great. I think we had one question come in. Walker Max, you want to take that one?
1: Um, there was a question in the Q and A that just asked that: uh, What entity is the responsible institutional review board? Is there an independent supervision slash data safety monitoring board?
2: Yep, that's a great great question. So. Um, we're governed by uh, Western IRB, which I think is now WCG IRB, um, and that's a central IRB approval. So the, the IRB approved site for Track is Target Cancer Foundation. We're fully remote, so we don't have IRB approved physical sites. Um, that was part of the original design, but then um, in time we decided that we would be a, a fully fully remote study. So a little bit unique in that we are the our foundation is the IRB approved enrollment site for the study. Um, there is not an independent data safety monitoring board because we are not providing drugs uh, or testing drugs on this study. Um, we're, we're making recommendations for, um, approved therapies or clinical trials. Um, so, so that's not part of our protocol to, to have a board ourselves. Rather that would be covered through whatever, um, you know, if it was a clinical trial through the, the, um, DSMB for that trial, for example.
0: Uh, Jim, I had a couple questions around the the matching therapies part, because I think from what I'm understanding, a big component of this study is kind of tracking um, outcomes based on whether or not there were matched therapies and if the patient kind of followed any of the recommendations yep. coming out of the um, tumor board. And um, so I think there are a couple questions here. One, for a disease, uh, and I know there are probably differences uh, across diseases, but for a disease like osteosarcoma, often... There are no druggable mutations, so there aren't many matched therapies that come up. So um, kind of what happens in that case where, you know, you get a report, and certainly there, there are many um, mutations that come up, but none of them are druggable. Kind of what happens in that case?
2: Yeah, so so typically our RMTB um, isn't really providing recommendations for um, uh for sort of a, a standard of care or something like that. Um they typically really are looking for molecularly matched therapies based on the reports that are generated. Um so as a result, um, it does occasionally happen that there unfortunately the report doesn't point to a treatment and and if that's the case, then we would we would just um, say as much in the report. Um we then would continue to test the blood over the year that follows. So that that the patient in that study wouldn't be followed any differently than than anybody else. Um and should anything turn up later then we would be able to give a recommendation on that. I would say it's I, there I, I I know there's definitely um sort of a spectrum of of diseases for which there are druggable mutations. Um I would say it, it's it's pretty rare um that a participating patient would not have anything that that our MTB would recommend um but it it certainly can happen.
0: And um and then you had mentioned that there is follow up with the patient afterwards cuz I'm just kind of curious then how you are following up to see if the um recommendation was followed and um kind of what match therapy they were on so it is it a combination of following up with a patient and then also um the medical records
2: yeah yeah it's primarily the medical records but we do keep in touch with participating patients you know mostly just to to keep in touch um you know because we've we've developed a relationship through the study and and now we want to know, hear from people um you know, about what what their experience is and, and where things are, but the sort of definitive source of information is always always um, the medical record. So, you know, we'll we'll collect that multiple times over the course of the study.
0: Um and I don't know if you can share this yet, but do you kind of have a sense of what percent of of patients do end up um following one of the recommendations and ending up on a matched therapy? And or are you able to tell if they aren't, kind of what the reason is, if it's just because, you know, they didn't they didn't want the side effects, you know, from the therapy, or one of the barriers that you mentioned is that they weren't able to procure the drug for yep. a new-
2: Yeah, yeah. So the first part of that question, that will be the main, you know, kind of the primary endpoint of the study. So we are in the process of looking at that for enrolled patients so far. Um, but don't really have that. We, we can't share that quite yet. Um, what, what I can tell you though more anecdotally is that there are a variety of reasons where we know, we know if a patient hasn't, um, gone on to a recommended treatment, um, there's certainly a variety of reasons why that could be the case. Um, and that could be anything from, like you said, being able to access the drug, although we try very hard to help people do that if, if they want that help. Um, but oftentimes I think, you know, it's, it's hard. It's, there's a lot of benefits to being a fully remote study. One of the challenges of a fully remote study, and I think as a community, we need to figure out how to do this better, is engaging with the physician. And Max asked this question earlier, you know, how how are we connecting with the doctor um, and not just sort of sending a report from this outside group that is you know, is making a recommendation that they might not be familiar with or uh, might seem a little bit out of the box. Um, so that can be part of the challenge. Um, it's just getting the doctor's attention um, but also helping to sort of explain the recommendation in a way that might lead them to implement it or, you know, if, if they agree with it. So that relationship I think is one challenge that in, you know, in real time, we're really trying to think through and better address because that can be a very big barrier. Just, just like I said, getting people's attention on this is hard. Although patients who are participating in this study, like I said, they, they drove the process. And I think very often they're, Bringing this report to their doctor and saying, "Okay, explain this," um, or you know, why aren't we following this? So, um, you know, we never want to expect that the patient would be the one who has to advocate for this. But I do think that oftentimes, with rare cancers, that does end up being the case. Um, and patients, we hope, are very empowered with this information to to help make treatment decisions.
0: Um. So I love that this is so inclusive of all rare cancers, but. You know, one of the challenges can be just getting a large enough sample set to study a specific disease. Yep. Um, and so, just kind of thoughts on that, because even with with the uh, the goal of four hundred uh, for enrollment, two hundred of which are other cancers that are outside, only just carcinoma and um, unknown um, unknown primary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you still might end up with kind of smaller sample sets. So. On that and I know, you know, another thing is, I mean, FMI clearly has lots of data on, you know, lots of diseases that are from patients not enrolled on the study, um, and so I'm just wondering what are the possibilities of also kind of being able to look at that data to to be able to have a larger sample set uh, for each disease and not really start to see some patterns.
2: Yeah, so those are great questions, and we. When we were developing this protocol and really thinking through how we did this we spent a lot of time going back and forth about you know do do we want to create do we want to focus on maybe three or four cohorts and get a hundred patients in each cohort so that we have a critical mass of data um, like you were saying and we thought a lot about it but really our is um i i think they really operate under the philosophy that you know, when when you're looking at the genomics, um, you know, tumor type, of course, is always important, but really we're, we're trying to think about how, how these mutations are driving therapy. And as a result, you know, you can develop a basket study like this that's looking at many, many, many different types of cancer, but sort of come out with a primary endpoint, like one that says, well, you know, in rare cancers, X percent of patients were matched to molecular therapy. And their outcomes compared to those who were not were, you know, showed this differential. And I know I'm being very vague here, but essentially the the determination by our um, ac- academic sort of leadership was that in rare cancers, there's an opportunity here to look very broadly um, sort of and sort of an umbrella um, taking in all different types of rare cancers. And even if we're not developing genomic data on 50 patients with any particular type of rare cancer, we're developing this data across the board, but we're also coming up with this greater sort of support for the use of molecular testing in determining treatments for rare cancers. So um, I can tell you among those 40 types of rare cancers, you know, for some types, we may have 50, 60, or you know, 50 or 60 patients, and many, many of them are N of ones. But, you know, I think as as we've been running this study, having the ability to reach so many different communities um, has really been it's really been pretty amazing. Um, and we're really glad that we can open this up to the entire rare cancer community instead of only having to focus on two or three or four.
0: That makes sense. So, it's really kind of also kind of making a case that being able to kind of look at the molecular profile and then kind of leading to suggested therapies that that's kind of a good model for treatment that can end up with better
2: outcomes. I, I think that's, that's really our hypothesis. Um, and I would say that while While the MTB meeting, of course, you know, our medical history has medical history and family history and tumor type and all of those different things, really the discussion is guided by the genomic reports um, and and the mutations driving the cancer more so than saying, well, because this person has cancer X, they should receive treatment Y. Um, And and that's, that again, has really been the philosophy of, of this group, I think in their own practices, but also in coming together on this study to help us operate this.
0: Yeah, you know, another um, kind of leading to that, because I think one of the challenges too in rare diseases and particularly pediatric rare diseases, that, you know, it is really hard to get um, drugs um, approved. And um, I actually just saw something yesterday, and I think she's one of the uh, track investigators, Dr. uh, Rachel Kurzrock. Yes. Uh, And she had kind of posted something about, um, you know, kind of this idea that uh, kind of looking that it's not, the actual type of tumor or like that anatomical location, is not as important as the uh, genomic profile. And so, for example, um, like Lertractiv was kind of the first drug that was kind of approved for a specific mutation as opposed to disease site. Um, and she had posted something, I think, about potentially ALK being another kind of example of that. Yeah. So I'm also just kind of curious how, like in this study, kind of being able to, slice and dice, and not, not even so much by disease type, but really just kind of by the genomic profile?
2: Well, I think, you know, from my perspective, one of the most encouraging and hopeful things I see in rare cancer treatment is the fact that there's now, I believe, nine FDA-approved tumor agnostic therapies. And is was the first one, and it, I, I think it remains one of the best examples. Um, you know, it, it's very, like you said, it's very hard to get drugs approved in rare cancers. Um then there's a million reasons for that. And we all know what so many of those reasons are. Um, but if there's a tumor agnostic therapy, and if we're able to use genomic testing to identify a patient who otherwise has no standard of care, but has an intrAC fusion, and now can get on larotrectinib, which happens to be, you know, a, a studies have shown a very, in a lot of ways, effective drug. Um, that's a huge opportunity for a, a patient in a rare cancer that might otherwise not have enough attention to have that drug Developed just for it, so um, I think the spirit of that is what drives a lot of what we've put together here. Um, not only for tumor-agnostic therapies, but I'm very excited about tumor-agnostic approvals. I I think I think it's sort of the wave of the future in a lot of ways. Um, and again, I think it offers a lot of hope that we don't we don't have to follow kind of the drug development map the way that it's gone forever. We might be able to leverage these approvals in ways that can help people right away, but they have to get tested. Um, or else, or else we don't know.
1: Um, I just had a quick question. Um, What methods are you using to recruit participants? Are you going through nonprofits like MIB, or are you going straight to clinicians? And I was also wondering if you offered the survey in other languages like Spanish. Those are uh, both really good questions. So um, our, our primary
2: recruitment model is um, exactly what I'm doing right now. Um, Not that this is a recruitment um, webinar, but I I mean, partnering with our um, advocacy friends in the rare cancer space, educating them about the study, and if they choose to, having them, um, you know, communicate information to their communities about it. So um, we're not really working. We don't have physical sites, so we don't have clinicians putting patients on the study that way. Um, We do have some clinicians out there who have learned about the study and like it and send us a lot of their patients. But um, really, primarily, it's organic, whether through Google or clinicaltrials.gov or through our partnerships in the rare cancer community. And because we're sort of an umbrella rare cancer organization, um, we we sit in the middle of rare cancer advocacy, and we just have a lot of, you know, a lot of long-time um, great partnerships with disease-specific organizations. And certainly MIB and Ann is a great example of that, where, um, you know, upon bumping into each other, then we realize there could be some synergy here, and this might be a benefit to to people in the community that she represents. Um so so that's really um that's really been how we've done it. And I'm sorry, what was the second question again?
1: I was just wondering if you offered the survey in other languages like to reach yes. Of course. I'm sorry.
2: Um in not at the moment. Um so like I said, we're uh, our study team is fully internal here at TCF. And what we learned um is that you can't just translate your consent into other languages unless you have a staff who is fluent and can speak to patients in those languages um, and fully support anybody enrolled in the trial in that way. So um, as our team is still pretty small, we're English only, but again, like I said at the beginning, there's there's so much more we can be doing here to make sure we're reaching everybody. Um, and those are things we hope to, to add in time.
1: Uh, I had one question. Uh... I was just wondering. So, let's say you get the biomarker testing, go to the molecular tumor board, and then they come back and there's no really like approved therapies. Would you then look at clinical trials that are potentially uh, kind of going after that exact mutation? And could you recommend that to them? Are you really only recommending already approved therapies?
2: Yeah. No, we. I would say clinical trials are often um, prioritized at the top of the list for for recommendations. And again. You know, and actually my organization just held a, a, a separate webinar two hours ago talking about why clinical trials are, you know, are so important in rare cancers. And I think, you know, when when there aren't available treatments, um, obviously clinical trials can offer um, so, some very positive options. So um, really our MTB tends to prioritize clinical trials um, when, when making recommendations along with on-label um, therapies as well
0: that's a great question. Um, Jim, I'm wondering when will the, I, I know you're still there's, you're still unrolling, so it's going to be a while until you have But What is the plan for sharing the data and making that? accessible?
2: Yeah. So we'll, as soon as we can, um, we will publish, you know, data from this study. Uh, so sort of do it through that format. Um, it, I don't think it'll have to wait until the end of the study. I think we'll really, we're, we're going to try very hard to get a mid study publication out. So, um, you know, it's, it's taken us some time to get to the first 150 patients, but we're actually, our operation is so much smoother at this point that I think the second half of the study will enroll much faster. Um, but we won't have to wait until we've enrolled 400 patients to do that. We'll do a mid study publication. I hope that will um, you know, start getting this information out there. And in addition to all the genomic data and everything else, we've just learned a lot about what it means to operate a decentralized study in rare cancers. And I think as so many people are interested in in doing this in this way uh, we have a lot of qualitative information to offer as well to hopefully inspire other groups to do something very similar um so you know we'll we'll hope to put our template out there and and you know encourage people to to do something um, something like this for their communities
0: yeah I mean this is I was going to say this is really a great model I think for a study and there's such a huge patient benefit I think We were talking about this earlier, but, you know, a key, I think, to getting patients to engage in a study is to really have a really kind of clear uh, benefit to participating. And there's certainly one here, which is, you know, to to kind of take advantage both of the um, foundation medicine testing, which, you know, depending on what insurance you have can be quite costly. So this is a fantastic opportunity to benefit from that and will receive that at no cost and also benefit from that uh, molecular tumor board. Doing the making recommendations, so um, some really big benefits I think from participating, and so easy just because of all the other things that you mentioned with the uh, the uh, the mobile, you know, uh, blood draws, and 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 also even the kind of uh, people to help with kind of looking, helping to determine how you can help get the drug, you know, either through compassionate use or uh, some of the uh, pharmaceutical foundations or whatever it is. But um, those are some really um, fantastic
2: benefits of enrolling in this trial. Yeah, thank you and you know maybe the only thing I would add is is you know like I said a lot of those benefits were things we added later based on what we were hearing. Um, and even though we've developed this story to adri- or this story, this study to um address the challenges that are consistent across rare cancers, we know that one size still doesn't fit all. Um, and I think as communities engage with the study, we can learn more about that community. And if there if there are elements of the experience that are very specific, say, to the osteosarcoma community, and I know that there are, but if those elements of that experience sort of drove a change in our study, we'd be very open to hearing about that and trying to make sure that we were addressing it. So, you know, I do think that um, as new communities sort of work with us, um, we're just we're always open to to hearing. Of course, within the we, we can't change the study too much. We have to make sure that we're consistent, but things like adding global phlebotomy or things like um, uh, adding in the genetic counselor, that kind of thing, it it just that's all in response to what we're hearing from the community, and we always want to make sure that we're we're doing this in a way that works for everybody involved. Um, so so you know, always very open to feedback. these have all been outstanding questions, by the way. Um, but really, always open to to hearing more whether or not somebody is participating.
1: The goal of this of the track and to like gather more data on rare cancers. Are you eventually hoping to expand into like canines and other tumors that could be easier to gather data on? Yeah, that's that's
2: you know it's a good question. We've thought a lot about sort of what comes next. Um, you know, and I think that what we've developed here is a model that. A sort of a patient-driven model for participating in a study that really works alongside existing care versus sort of um, taking over from it. Um, so this this study is really intended to kind of enhance the data that a patient has and understanding of what treatments are available and that kind of thing. So I think we would be more inclined as we think about what's, what's in the future to really stay on that path, but to ask different questions. Um, so we're a rare cancer organization, so we'll always stay there. Um, you know, but but I think it'll be more towards you know thinking about what are what are other things we could look at in this same decentralized patient driven way to answer other research questions while kind of addressing uh, very very present challenges from a research funding perspective we might be very interested um, you know and someday if we can if we can go back to research funding and running the study um, you know those types of things that you brought up might be you know the the you know kind of a good add on or supplement um, but I think as we think about study two study three it's it's kind of keeping in the spirit of what we're doing
1: here
0: uh well and on that note so plug plug from a from a disease that you know disproportionately affects um children and aya like expanding to below 18 would be fantastic um i mean especially because i i mean i don't know but i if there are differences as well in kind of adult versus pediatric tumors even within the same um disease
2: yeah and um Your phones will all be ringing when we do that because we will, you know, we will rely on on the community to help us understand how to how to do that. Because I know it's, you know, uh, like I said, when when I got to work with with the Count Me In team, and and of course, um, they were enrolling patients across all age groups. um, It's not as simple as just opening up enrollment. There's much much more to it, and we would rely on the expertise of communities like yours to do that. So. Um, we would love to. And as long as you're all uh, you know, willing, willing to help, uh, then I, I'd love to to find ways to partner on that.
0: Yeah. Well, no, we're always happy to help support and promote a great opportunity. Um, and thanks for providing. We'll be sending out, we'll be sharing uh Jim's uh slides um in an email um to everyone who registered for this episode so you can easily find where to get more information and how to enroll. Um, thank you so much, Jim, for joining us on Osteobites today and for making it better for rare cancer patients. More information on this and all Osteobytes can be found on the MIB Agents YouTube channel, on our website at mibagents.org, and at your favorite podcast place. And next week on October twelfth, we have a special episode of Osteobytes. It is National Hispanic Heritage Month, and we are super excited to host our the very first osteobites in Spanish. Our MIB events manager, Anita Caldera, will be hosting next week with our special guest, Dr. Nino Reynuso, who's a pediatric oncologist from Texas Children's Hospital. And Dr. Reynuso will address common questions about osteosarcoma and will also answer uh, questions from a webinar attendees. And we'll have a couple of osteo warriors who will share their perspectives. And uh, Noriella Elia from the Count Me in Osteosarcoma Project will also be on hand talk about how patients can engage in research to help find a cure. Um, so it's gonna be an episode chock full of information um, and please share this with your clinical teams or anyone else you know who might be interested. You can find our osteobytes lineup for the next few months on our website. And if you have any ideas for future topics that you'd like to hear about, please share them with us at events at mabagents.org. Thank you again to Jim, Max, to Walker, and to all of you for spending an hour with us today. Please spread the word about our osteobites next week. Um, and then we have a new episode of our AYA podcast, Osteo Dropping on October 19th. Um, and then we'll be back with osteobites on October 26th with Dr. Nyleh Shaw from Nationwide Children's Hospital. And he's going to be discussing an open clinical trial studying cabozantinib as a maintenance therapy for osteocircle. Um, so hope to see you back here on osteobites, And thanks everyone and have a good rest of the week.